0: This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I woke up this morning, threw on a podcast, added a scoop of Athletic Greens to 10 ounces of cold water, shook it up, and I sipped on that while I made my coffee and started cooking my breakfast. It's super refreshing. I love the taste. There's some fruit extracts and a little stevia in there to make it tasty, not too sweet, and I look forward to it almost as much as that first sip of coffee. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I take very few supplements. I really like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh fruits and veggies, not to mention organic, when you live in a van and travel to some of these remote climbing areas. Athletic Greens is going to give you, my dear listener, a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. I put the link right there in your podcast app to make your life easy. Again, that is athleticgreens.com nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. My go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for Rock climbing. I have been applying the repair cream several times in the evenings here in Waco, and it's definitely helping my skin heal faster and keeping it tough and pliable so I can try hard on all of my crimpy projects. If you want to try the repair cream and level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com code Nugget for 20% off. You're welcome. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Brent Bargon. Brent is currently based in Flagstaff, Arizona. He is a badass trad climber and big wall climber and a former engineer at Black Diamond. Super smart guy, super analytical, and really fun to talk to in this conversation. Uh, This was a super geeky one. I think many of you will absolutely love it. We spent the first 30 minutes or so talking about house hacking and how Brent leveraged real estate investing and some handyman work and some carpentry, and buying houses and renting them to effectively retire at age 28. And this guy was working at BD, not some crazy tech startup making millions of dollars. Yeah, super interesting. He lived really cheaply, managed to save a lot of money, and is a full-time climber and effectively retired. He works a handful of days a month at age 28. So if that is interesting to you, I think you'll love the start of this conversation. We then backtracked. We got into his upbringing. Brent has a background in action sports. So he grew up racing motocross and got into some other extreme outdoor activities that are fascinating and things I hadn't heard about before. So look forward to that. And then of course we got into his climbing. He's done some ground up free ascents of El Cap. And he also did a free rope solo ascent of Father Time on Middle Cathedral. That's a mouthful. Basically, he free-climbed it, he red-pointed it by himself with a rope. How did he do that? We get into that, we get into his system for red-point rope soloing, and we share some resources from his blog if that is interesting to you so you can get a visual. But all in all, Brent's a classic engineer. He's got systems for everything. He puts a lot of thought into this stuff. And I loved this interview. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. I've got a follow up coming out soon. I'm gonna try to get it out this week with Tom Randall. That was also super fun and super geeky in the weeds. We talked about how to program your training. So if you are a self-coached climber or a climbing coach that coaches other people, I think you'll find that conversation incredibly valuable. I have been coaching myself for a decade and I've coached other people and I still got a lot of nuggets out of that follow-up with Tom. So I'm going to try to get it out this coming week. I think it'll be out on Thursday, no guarantees, but keep your eye out for that. I think that was a really valuable conversation. So I'll put out a free teaser for that, per usual. And as soon as the teaser is up, I will make the full thing available to patrons the same day. If you're loving the show, if you want to support the show, and if you want to get access to more than 30 follow-ups that I've published so far, you can sign up for Patreon for $5 per month. There's a ton of perks. You can learn more about it at patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. Thank you guys for tuning in today, and please enjoy this wide ranging and very in depth conversation with Brent Bargon.
1: do do
0: Brent. So good to see you and meet you in person. I'm, well, I I keep saying that when I meet people on Zoom versus <laughs> emails or whatever else. Good to see your face and to meet it you. It feels
2: more intimate than <laughs> texting or emailing, for sure. Right, right. Step in the right direction.
0: Yeah, COVID has me thinking this is actually meeting in person, which is, I don't know, there's something to unpack there. But yeah, good to see you. I would love to start with asking you, um, I think this will be fun. I, I want to ask a little bit about your background and how you got to be the climber that you are now. But before that, can you describe for us what your life looked like a year and a half ago? And I think it'd be fun to contrast that with what it looks like today. But can you take us back roughly a year and a half and describe where you were and and kind of give us a day in the life at
2: that time? Yeah, let's think back. A year and a half ago, pre-COVID, I was actually living in a house but for the longest time I was living in my van in the black diamond parking lot.
0: That's what I'm and, getting to. I might have the timeline yeah, figured... the timeline wrong.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know I I don't even know what the math would end up being, but maybe two and a half years ago, something like that. I was five years into van life and kind of living the dream of engineering work, working full time, designing climbing gear, and actually just living in my van in the black diamond parking lot. So that's that's probably like the the peak you're looking for. But I kind of had a funny reverse van life arc compared to a lot of people and did most of my van lifing as a frugal means um, to stash a bunch of cash while working full time. And it was just scorching it out on the Black Diamond pavement through the summer, just doing what I could to do my engineering stint. I always thought I had about like a 10-year time horizon in that career path before I'd feel restless and I was using the van life as a tool to just save as much money as I could. So I was working full-time and designing climbing gear for Black Diamond, working on climbing hard goods. So the meat and potatoes of what Black Diamond is known for. And just trying to climb as much as I could, whether in the gym during the week, a whole bunch up in Little Cottonwood. And then on the weekends, just doing the standard weekend warrior thing. Um, Funny enough, I would actually leave my van parked and I had a tiny little hybrid car, <laughs> like about as small as they get, a uh, OG 2000 Honda Insight uh, that I would take on the weekends because it was extra cheap, getting 60 miles per gallon. Um, and the van was very cheap to live in, but not so frugal to take on the weekends. Um, so that was my full optimization <laughs> for trying to save as much money as I could during the engineering stint. That's hilarious! Hilarious opposite van life situation of what it's known for these days.
0: You just had your two parking spots in the BD parking lot—one for your van and one for (laughs) your your hybrid. That's amazing. Did you have like this is my spot? Did you have like a designated parking spot? Were you just on the on the asphalt there in the middle of the parking lot?
2: Yeah, I I totally did claim one spot there. There was a single tree with a little planter. Um, on the the side middle of the parking lot and I would park there because I would at least get maybe half a day of shade Um, (laughs) in Salt Lake City. It really scorches during the day, especially during the summer. So even a couple hours of shade in the morning made a big difference for trying to sleep in or just generally generally stay cool in the van. Heat is the bane of your existence when you're living Mm. in a van. It is cold is manageable, but heat is difficult.
0: It is. Yeah. It's a lot easier to put a heater in your van than an air conditioning unit. I haven't found a way to do that. I just chased, I just tried to escape summer whenever I can, (laughs) but that's really fun. You're kind of a kindred spirit. And I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast, but I've been living in a van for two and a half years, but only on the road for two. And I had a six month period where uh, I bought the van maybe in the March or April, like early spring, had it built out in May and June, maybe I'm off by a month. I think I moved into it in August. It was all built out. And then I didn't actually leave my job and hit the road until February the following year. So I similarly, I I, I was still renting a a parking space at the house that I had rented a room at before. It was, it was really funny. I was renting a room for my friend who owned the house. Uh, His girlfriend's cousin was living in their little Chinook camper in the driveway, and then I bought my van. They sold the Chinook, and she and I just switched places. Like, she took over my room, and I just moved into the driveway. that's hilarious. So I kind of lived there, but I also kind of lived at uh, Epic Aircraft, at the place that I worked at, the aerospace company, and just had, like, my little campsite in the dirt, this this parking lot. It was actually kind of a, a nice setup for me under some juniper trees, but... Yeah, living in the in the job parking lot for the better part of 6 months. <laughs> if
2: there's shower access uh, in the building, it goes a long way.
0: I want to ask about that. So, I had my own systems. I had the I was renting the parking lot so I could use their house. They were really cool with that. Um I also had a membership to the gym where I would shower. But yeah, give me some of the the tips and tricks that you learned. <laughs> the urban
2: van life logistics. Cuz yeah, how how
0: long 5 years you did that? That's That's plenty of time to dial things in.
2: I think it was three and a half in the Black Diamond parking lot. And then I actually had moved into my van in Minnesota when I was working a different engineering job. And this wasn't even related to climbing. I had read a book called Walden on Wheels and was um, trying to overcome some significant student loan debt and just changing my financial situation overall. Um, Going from spending every paycheck it's kind of the standard American patterns. Um, but one of my first engineering jobs, a bit of a tangent here, I had a mentor named Blaine who set me straight on how to live frugally. He was kind of an outdoorsy type person and understood the, the nature of frugality, allowing freedom later in life. So that like 180 degree changed my direction, my course of engineering work and idea of career. Um, so that led into the van life situation purely as a financial means, not even as a method for climbing, Mm. climbing more or climbing different destinations. Um, so I was living in my employer at the times parking lot and then just parking random places around Minneapolis, funny enough. (laughs) And I would use the climbing gym there, which was not so sweet. Um, just quite a bit of commuting, a lot of waypointing, you know, run your daily errands um, but the Black Diamond situation was pretty bougie in that it was like a campground, a personal campground for me because I could just walk two minutes with 24-7 access into the building and catch a shower. Um, yeah, stop by my desk, a little bit of extra storage, some of my <laughs> bulky items if needed, that sort of thing. What did you keep at your desk? Um, I think I kept my unicycle there <laughs> in terms of like bulky random things I don't want in my van. What else do they have? A lot of random extra gear, uh, like old ropes, portal edge, those sorts of things. (laughs) Just like overfilled storage. Not a full storage unit, but that sort of thing.
0: Did you get any grief from Black Diamond, or did they just totally love what you were doing?
2: It was kind of hit or miss. It depended. um, Well, Black Diamond is in a fairly suburban setting, funny enough, even though there's a bit of a factory element to the building mm. um it's totally in a neighborhood so it's a little bit odd to be camping outside of it and it would kind of come and go in terms of tension just based on how many people were trying to do it at the time and if they were fully enclosed blackout curtains like um, low-key situation or if they were car camping like cooking outside their car so we might get random stragglers coming through or people just making it work in the meantime, that would be a little bit more conspicuous and then tensions might flare up. It would kind of come and go. Um, At one point, a coworker had like a 30 some foot RV, like a crappy class C RV that they were living in. (laughs) That was definitely pretty conspicuous. So things flared up a little bit there, but I just kept doing my thing (laughs) because I was fully enclosed and about as low key as it got.
0: Nice. I love it. The blackout curtains. I've talked about that on the show a little bit. That's like one of my top recommendations for people considering van life. Those make, I love yeah. having lots of windows for the natural light. It's really nice. It makes the the van feel really spacious when you're stuck inside working, um, but also having blackout curtains that you can use magnets with and snap into place or whatever it is to to block out city lights or to just be inconspicuous like you're talking about those are huge those are awesome
2: yeah i know when i was researching my van van things back in oh man it must have been 2014 or 2015 now um the stealth stealth camping was the buzzword i imagine it's died down a little bit because everyone knows what the what the white delivery van is these days (laughs) (laughs) but in minnesota it was true i could like Park in downtown Minneapolis, like at a parking meter that was just not enforced overnight, mm. and just kind of do my thing. Nice. It was it was pretty awesome. For, <laughs> at least in Minnesota, no one was no one had caught on to someone living in the van.
0: Do you have any other van life tips for people that are new to it or considering?
2: Ooh, um, I don't know if I have anything uh, anything novel to add.
0: Okay. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah.
2: yeah. Like I said, um, it was totally a means to an end. And I think my perspective on van life was a little bit odd and different than a lot of other people's using it for travel. Um, But but I guess that would be my tip would be that it's quite possible to work full time and live in a van as a financial tool Mm. Um, and not just having it as a weekend toy. Um, to me, it's kind of funny how there's two different ethos mixed up in van life that are nearly opposite in my mind, at least, um, the, the live in full-time van as a frugal tiny home versus the fancy weekend warrior toy. Um, right. It's, it's kind of a funny thing how those visually externally look the same. Um, but at least in my heart, (laughs) the financial situation is completely opposite. So I've always been a fan of using it as a, a tool to, to start building some equity into something um, that's valuable rather than just paying rents and also just using it as affordable living. Yeah. I generally, I generally answer your question. No, That's but
0: that's great. That's great. Little it's, insight. It's, into- yeah. It's I, I want to ask more about this mentor that kind of helped you change your path. It sounds like yeah. um, it sounds really similar. It sounds like you, got into this like fire movement, this financial independence retire early thing and found your own way of doing that by living really cheaply uh, while working as an engineer. Um, Absolutely. Let's talk about where you're at now and then we can kind of fill in the the middle as far as how you got there and any strategies that you think are helpful for people to think about. But yeah, so we described the day in the life (laughs) two and a half years ago, whenever it was, what are things looking like today?
2: So today I live in Flagstaff, Arizona with my partner, Tahani. Um, She was also a designer, like R&D type person at Black Diamond where we had met. Um, But we live in effectively a tiny home accessory dwelling unit inside of a larger house, Um, a house that I purchased and did all the remodel work myself to partition a legal dwelling unit of 400 square feet or so, and then renting out the rest of the house. And this is a means to subsidize housing and was the next step after van life. Um, I had done this in Salt Lake as well. Um, so now I have quite a bit of freedom and I'm basically climbing full time. I jokingly call myself retired, but uh, I still I still do carpentry work and some random home remodel work. Like one to three times a month. <laughs> so like, pretty low-key employment, just enough to... A little extra spending cash for um for trips or whatever else the bougie life i live <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but let's
0: see so you guys are you guys are based in the small house and you're renting out the rest of the house or the, the rest of the property?
2: Yep. Okay. Yep. It's connected. Um but I remodeled it down to the studs and did double layer drywall and a bunch of things for soundproofing. Mm. Um so I call it a tiny house inside of a house, but it's basically a master suite that we added a kitchen to. Okay. And have have like a separate entrance. Oh cool. Um, yeah, in the in the real estate parlance it's called house hacking, is the buzzword house applied hacking. to this this strategy and I've basically done this same move three times. Um, so partly why I'm able to climb full time is I use all the money that I had been saving in van life to invest in real estate. Um, So I was purchasing real estate while I was in my van as like a standard owner occupied mortgage, Um, but I was just an absentee roommate. And there's a little bit of a loophole in mortgage law where you only have to live in a house for a year before you can convert it into a rental property without needing to change any mortgage terms. So as a super transient climber type. Um, I would buy a house just like anyone else with engineering income, um, kind of not really live there, rented out, live in my van. (laughs) And then I would fully move out of the house maybe a year, a year and a half later and have that as a rental property and then purchase something else. Um, so that was my means to this full-time climbing life. And it, yeah, it's, Basically, it's just a small-time business I run on the side, landlording, and I had done a bunch of remodel work along the way for each property, and it allows the freedom um, that I have now.
0: That's incredible. So you still own, you're building on this with each one, so you have multiple properties now? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, effectively did the same thing, and this is the third house. Uh, But I have two other properties that are um, rental properties, long-term leases, and I just see it as a, a small local business, I'm providing good service to my tenants. And honestly, it feels more noble to me than just making widgets that are mass produced across the world. Mm. <laughs> There's like a little bit of a, um, I don't know, like things that the term slumlord is often thrown <laughs> around and is- That popped into upon. my mind, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> it bugs me. I think it's great. Yeah, I, I just see it as a p- providing affordable housing to like the same divided housing situation just as a win-win for everyone involved. Mm. Um, and just, yeah, charging reasonable rents and providing really, really good service to my tenants is just it's just another small business making it work. But by living <laughs> frugally in my van, I was able to to get this spun up. And that's basically my retirement plans. So now I just make... A little bit extra money doing skilled labor work to, um, yeah, like I said, not feel too strapped for cash. Um, still be able to have a fancy espresso machine and a Prius <laughs> and all these nice things in my life. Um, but yeah, definitely don't have to work so much anymore.
0: That's awesome.
2: <laughs> but yeah, the many years of band life sacrifice fully paid off. Very cool. It was not 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 so glamorous at times living in the parking lot, in the middle <laughs> of July. <laughs> but it definitely paid off.
0: That's so awesome. I mean, that sounds so that sounds so attainable uh, for for most people to do something like that. And it's interesting. I mean, yeah the term the term slumlord is familiar to me, and it popped into my mind as you were talking. But I, I feel like we need a different word for what you're doing because that brings to mind like buying cheap crappy houses and doing the bare minimum with them and just like trying to make as much money as you can on them before they totally fall apart. But I imagine there must be, to your point about the satisfaction of this versus making widgets, as a carpenter, as someone who has invested time and probably love and energy into these buildings and, and tried to make something thinking of it as a craft and trying to make something really functional and really nice, it must feel, you're, you're directly impacting the day-to-day experience of your tenants and that must feel really cool. I, I imagine that's really fulfilling.
2: Yeah, exactly, and that's why I've kind of ended up in this real estate realm over engineering. Um, the, the rental properties and the current remodel work I do blend together for sure. And it to me, I, I found that just sitting at a computer and spinning models around was not as fulfilling as working one-on-one, I guess, one-off design work and one-off creation is a different feeling to me than the mass market things I had been involved with in the past um, with the commercial engineering work. Mm. So whether it's house remodel or um, yeah, fixing even down to like patching drywall for somebody these days, if that's if a, like a low level thing I can do occasionally, Honestly, it feels like as rewarding as some of the engineering work I've done in the past. Yeah, it's a funny situation that the US career model has ended up in, um, in that now there's just tons and tons of engineers and skilled knowledge workers, uh, but there's definitely a skilled labor shortage. So these skills I had built up my whole life, built up my whole life, are starting to pay off separate from going to engineering school. Like I'd always been building things and working with wood and metal. Um, And it's pretty cool how it provides freedom to do piecemeal work that you just can't find in corporate engineering life, at least.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, there's something so satisfying about developing a physical hands-on craft and seeing the, the direct output of that. I'm curious, do you have plans to do more of this or are you set? Like, do you have enough rental properties that you're you're at your sweet spot of um, amount of effort to manage them and income and things like that. Or are you trying to still build this further?
2: No, I'm at a sweet spot right now. Um, I thought I would, like I said, I thought I was going to hit like a 10 year mark in engineering. It would maybe try to scale this side business a little bit further. Um, but with COVID pressures and all the weirdness, the exit came a little bit earlier than I had planned. Um, but That's why I'm subsidizing with other remodel work. Has made a lot of sense. Um, but right now, I'm just trying to focus on full-time climbing mm-hmm. and uh, not really worrying, worrying about scaling the business and just maintaining and still um, hitting the marks I need to there, but not, not necessarily acquiring, acquiring more or investing more.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah.
0: And then I'm, I'm also curious, just a couple more questions about this side of things. As a landlord, <laughs> yeah. how much time does that take up? you know, having done the work yourself, having these great properties that you're doing long-term leases. Does it feel like a job or is it just the occasional thing? Like once a month, you have to go fix something or I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty
2: pretty low key. I run it like a business and having moved out of state, definitely forced it to be a business.
0: Oh, some properties are in Utah.
2: Yeah, but I have a really good handyman um, that's effectively on call. And so even though I do all those same trades in my own work, Um, hiring it out, lets it run like a a clean, clean cut business. And um, I don't have to do too much more than answering, answering emails, just like anyone else that's managing that sort of thing. Um, So it's pretty low key, not too much time commitment. And it was definitely all based on putting the work in ahead of time. Um, Like I said, each property I did have a lot of intimate time with and did a lot of the remodeling myself so I know the properties in and out. Um, so right now, I can I can relay what needs to be done with the handyman and work with the tenants. Um, and COVID kind of helped that too because people expected things to be done digitally more than coming in person to have a conversation or something like that. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of a <laughs> a crazy head trip from the van life is thinking about having this like business that. If you look at it directly, it feels really complicated and stressful, but it's all about systems like anything mm. else. Uh, so I put a lot of time into having the systems and just let it run and do the work where I need to.
0: That's awesome. Man. Yeah. From, from no house to many houses. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty classic. At least, there was at least a year where I was living in the BD parking lot and had had a house, but I just wasn't living in it <laughs> for Back, back, like purely different financial means. Yeah, it was all a, a scheme to try to get to the point I am at now, um, to feel stable, and have a huge financial runway to pursue climbing. I feel like every climber either ends up front loading or back loading um, that financial picture, and I I felt lucky enough to have the BD position to to embrace that for as long as I could, and yeah, I just tried to do whatever I could to front load it, knowing that that chapter of life was going to come to an end. And I was hoping my next one would have way more freedom.
0: Mm. So front load, front loading meaning just putting your head down and working and saving up money for freedom later versus what a lot of, I see so many climbers do this, just like dirt bagging through their twenties into their thirties or even forties until they're like, okay, I need a job now. And just kind of putting that on the side and making up for lost time.
2: Yeah, totally. If I I hadn't gotten the BD position, I might not have felt the same, but I I knew I was graced with something special. So I embraced it as I could um, and used the the van life to set myself up for this chapter. And now I get to do a bunch of rock climbing as I wish and have time to volunteer and do other non-climbing activities also.
0: How old are you?
2: I'm 28. Wow.
0: <laughs> you're killing it. And how long did this take? So did you take like a couple years between BD and where you're at now or just after BD, I guess, to do all the remodeling and put your head down on these properties? Or were you were you moonlighting that no. and doing that on the side? Yeah, I
2: was moonlighting. I was grinding. Damn. So,
0: yeah, that sounds yeah, the, the, exhausting.
2: The time I, I feel like I'm a little bit aimless at times now with the, the freedom feeling so dramatic from where I was, but um, I also just like put a bunch of time in the piggy bank that I'm cashing out on now. So I was doing like late night remodel projects also while working full time at BD, but it's good big wall training <laughs> <laughs> coming off like a big remodel project. You're definitely wall fit.
0: That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Further evidence that big wall climbing is really just construction. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it kind of is. Just construction mixed with intermittent bouldering. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh
0: we're I promise we're gonna get to that in a second. I'm I'm curious how long did that whole process take from first rental property purchase to where you're at now with it, where it's yeah. like a sustainable business model.
2: Oh man, the full transition probably starts in it would have been 2014 late 2014 i think okay um when i met blaine as a formative mentor in my life and started reading up on mr money mustache blogs which i think oh. had been mentioned on this podcast yeah. a time or two
0: i've definitely um, i've definitely listened <laughs> to him on uh, i believe tim ferris and maybe some other podcasts i'll, I'll link to yeah. his interview on tim ferris for people that are curious but yeah great great he resource. definitely
2: writes in this extreme character that's over the top that's the whole point is he's trying mm. to like Yeah. Um, What a name. (laughs) He's trying to make fun of all the American quirks, especially how we treat money. Mm. Um, But I, yeah, that was the start of the transition. And like I said, I had graduated with a bunch of student loan debt and just kind of had to make myself from starting from there. And I purchased the van to stop paying rent and was just putting all the money into paying off loan debt first Um, And then after that, I started accumulating money in which I could start using for investments. And that led me down the the real estate path. Um, So overall here, we're looking at what? Eight years, something like that. Mm. Um, But I bought my first house like five years ago. Okay. So yeah, it was just slow and steady progress the whole way. Um, It's just always side hustling. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a bit of a busy body. So it suited me well. (laughs) And like I was saying... I needed a hands-on outlet anyways, so buying a house house, or buying a project house definitely gave me endless projects to do with my hands. Mm.
0: I'm curious, it's so often with the FIRE movement, people are just banking as much money as they can into like an index fund, just trusting that the market's going to grow and and doing that as their main way of building equity. Did you do that or are you doing that now? Are you Are you putting money away for retirement and any strategy there?
2: No, I've, I've gone all in, in the real estate, um, which to me, because I put all the work in myself, I was able to, to add equity, Mm. um, sweat equity, as they say. So I was able to add extra thresholds of security using, using my own labor. Um, so it seemed like the safest method for allocating all my funds, Mm.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for answering all those questions. That's a yeah, thirty-minute um, deep dive into
2: real estate. But totally. Well, I, do I really love, <laughs> I love the the financial scheming that's possible, and I think it actually meshes well with the climbing lifestyle because it's yeah. so transient. There's um, loopholes, is kind of a, a crude word for it, but there's creative ways to design a life that suits you. With um, just a little bit
0: extra sacrifice. Yeah. I I love it. I'm, I'm very personally interested. So this is great because that's kind (laughs) of my next chapter is like, um, yeah, is is buying a house and deciding where I want to do that and what I want that to look like and whether that will be somewhere where I want to live potentially for the rest of my life versus just seeking out a good investment and doing something similar to what you're doing and growing even more equity, more, more income streams and things like that. So so yeah, this kind of has my wheels churning. And I, I think a lot of people out there are really interested in this stuff because everyone wants to retire at 28 years old and just climb full time. So <laughs> yeah, and you've worked very hard, but it also, the way you're laying it out and framing it, it feels more attainable than some of the other examples that we, that we see, you know, where people are just doing these crazy, uh, what's the word I'm looking for?
2: yeah I'm no Bitcoin millionaire right he doesn't pay doesn't pay quite like a tech job
0: exactly <laughs> that that's what came to mind like you don't have some like you know seven figure tech job or something and you've you've banked all this money in your twenties um it feels way more attainable a little bit of suffering to live in a van in a parking lot, but hey, I mean climbers are used to that so yeah yeah, <laughs> that's great, okay, so I want to make our way to your climbing and I kind of have a, a path laid out that is just so intriguing to me. I want to backtrack to your childhood and kind of build on it from there. You already mentioned your unicycle. And I, <laughs> I think the most interesting little note that I have right here in front of me of all the things that you've accomplished in climbing, tell me about extreme unicycling. What is extreme unicycling yeah. and why am I asking you about it?
2: So I grew up doing all sorts of action sports. I'd say I was a a wannabe skateboarder and that I approached all my sports, um, the the way that skate culture had evolved, at least to that time. Um, So for example, with scootering or like riding a Razor scooter or say I got a unicycle, what was I going to do? I was going to start jumping off things, seeing if I could grind little skate rails, go to the skate park and rip around. And that evolved into me doing quite a bit of unicycling at the skate park and actually doing a lot of street street terrain. Um, so just like street skateboarding, going out and finding little curbs and handrails to grind, and jump around on. Um, so I did quite a bit of that through my teens, uh, high school and college. And yeah, I guess that culminated into a kind of a funny note in that I am a world record unicycle uh, world record holder for unicycling in the longest unicycle handrail grind. <laughs> just yeah, it's quite a funny thing. I'd always have it on my resume just as a talking point. So that's oh my gosh. Sensing that's what you're getting at. Yeah. That that early glory in the unicycle world. <laughs>
0: How old were you at the time?
2: I was 17 and yeah, the story there is that I was definitely not the best unicyclist by any means, uh, but I was a pretty good welder. (laughs) And I had seen this Robin big episode on MTV. Rob Dyrdek is a skateboarder and he also is not the best skateboarder in the world, but he's like, pretty sure I could build the longest handrail of optimal size and angle to slide as long as possible. So he did this like a hundred, foot long board slide rail record and i'm like oh i could totally do that with my unicycle so I, I got some like 20 foot bars of steel and made this 40 foot long rail behind my house and where did you put it yeah
0: do you have like a <laughs> long hillside or something
2: yeah we had a little acreage like a couple acres in semi-rural minnesota but it was actually just on the public road i just <laughs> like, moved it back <laughs> on the road behind my house and to get a guinness world record you have to You have to get like a packet of information and have some independent witnesses and a few things like this. So it's kind of a funny project as a 17-year-old just to like jump through all these hoops. Um, But I did a 34-foot long unicycle grind and got a plaque to commemorate (laughs) it. (laughs) Pretty classic story. Does that world record still hold? (laughs) Definitely not. I think it's the official world record still because no one else has gotten like the packet of information (laughs) and like hired some random notary to come watch. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But there's definitely like any action sports, unicycling has gone insane in the last 10 years in terms of ability. Um, You should, in your notes, link to Mimo Seedler. I'll send you the link, but anyone wants to know what extreme unicycling looks like today there's this one kid in Europe who's just insanely good and like what I do didn't even is like I don't know not even close to his low-level tricks but it's pretty cool I think anyone would be impressed with what can be done on a unicycle
0: I can't wait I can't wait to watch it but I'm gonna I'm gonna also make you describe it a little bit because I'm just so curious like what people are capable of on a unicycle and what that even looks like Um, I've seen unicycles obviously most people have you're just you have a bike seat, one wheel, and the pedals are directly attached to the seat. Um, how do you grind? Are you just grinding on the bottom of one of the pedals?
2: Yeah, yeah. You do a pedal slide. A pedal um, slide, okay. Kind of like on the crank and the pedal, depending on how big the rail is, so whether it's like a round rail or a flat bar. Um, but the seats have a handle, which make it possible to hop.
0: Oh, where is is the handle right in front of you? Like mm-hmm. right in center, okay.
2: Yep. So you can pop and hold the unicycle with you. And just like skateboarding, there's various unicycle tricks where you can jump up and kick the pedals and do like a little no footer with the, the wheels spinning around, kind of like a kickflip. And then you can jump up and spin the unicycle, catch it and land as like a pop shove it of sorts. Oh my gosh. Um, so just like any action sports, there's all these like quirky stunts that are <laughs> evolved, but. <laughs> Yeah, then the for grinding you just slide on the pedal, so you like ride up to a handrail, pop up, and slide the pedal, and then land and ride away. Mm. <laughs>
0: so that's what you got the world record for. What was your proudest trick from your unicycling days?
2: I was—I think my proudest trick was definitely just creative grinds because I was a welder. I'd make like zigzag rails or like curvy rails. This is when I was like 16, but I'd, <laughs> I'd have cool edits of like random rail um, rail geometries that no one else was doing just because I could actually make the rail
0: <laughs> <laughs> how much of it was uh, was for the unicycling just for the enjoyment of fabricating something and, and building something That uh, was
2: a huge part of it that was like a lot of what drove all my action sports is I would be out making the obstacles and that's like fun <laughs> it's kind of like route development but I think even a little bit deeper sense of satisfaction creating the rails and the jumps and things like that. I had like a little snowboard terrain park in my backyard and I had a snowmaker What? because in Minnesota it's really cold, but it doesn't, it doesn't snow that much for how cold it is. It's not like living in the mountains. So I had like a, um, it's effectively an air compressor and a pressure washer that merge with specific nozzle configuration. And I would just run this all night and wake up and have like huge piles of (laughs) snow To make to make jumps with, <laughs> yeah, it's <was> pretty awesome.
0: <laughs> what did? What yeah, were your parents like? What are your parents like? What did they think of all
2: of this? They were all into it. They just let I me love do whatever it. I wanted. I think the yeah one of the most formative parenting actions they took is I had a a charge account at the local hardware store. I grew up in a town of like five thousand people. It's a small town vibe, but. The hardware store locally owned had a charge account for my family name and I would just be able to go buy whatever nuts and bolts and spray paint I wanted to and that honestly I probably learned more from that specific account than I did from engineering school. Wow. I was like always making stuff.
0: <laughs> I love that and they just covered <laughs> the bill and just didn't even blink it at however much you you racked up. In yeah nuts it was and maybe like
2: a hundred bucks a month of okay. just like metal and spray paint and <laughs> things like that. But then I got a welder for my, I think it was like my 14th birthday. So, <laughs> forward of times, which which led to an obvious engineering path. But right. Such irony, you just end up sitting at a desk and you don't actually use your hands to make things very often. Mm. Um, so, full circle, that's why I left the desk world and just back to making things
0: i love it i love it man that's amazing
2: that's <laughs> so oh. all gonna make my rock climbing seem really boring <laughs> I think the, the unicycle days were the glory days for sure
0: <laughs> well i have a question that kind of ties into that but first tell me about motocross how did motocross fit in
2: Yeah, so that was actually the the overarching action sport that i participated in uh, my family didn't really do many of the, the school-based sports Um, From 8 to 18, I just raced dirt bikes in closed-course competition. Um, So the motocross racing that you see on TV is what I was doing growing up. It's actually very similar to climbing culture in some respects, is you're going to the track and you're camping out all weekend, and you have different families of kids of your same age group, and you're just hanging out. It's just glorified camping Mm. in the same kind of way that climbing is. And everyone would have their rig. Obviously, they're like three to five times larger rigs. (laughs) But it's kind of the same thing. Um, Yeah, so it's a a unique perspective to have in our liberal climbing culture. Because I definitely understand where all the motorsport passion comes from. Mm. Um, But at the same time, I definitely don't enjoy the razors ripping past the quiet climbing crag. Right. The like racer, dune buggy side-by-side things. Yeah. (laughs) But... It was quite a, quite a background to have before coming to to rock climbing because the energy levels are just so much higher racing dirt bikes that the danger level is quite a bit higher. Um, so having that mental fortitude of assessing risk and often you're like committing to gap jumps, mid race with people all around you, um, kind of jockeying for positions. So it's really intense. An intense activity mentally and physically, so it, it built a strong base of assessing risk and committing to committing to actions like wholeheartedly, mm. um, which I think led directly into my love for trad climbing. Um, committing to runouts or um, unknown terrain is very similar to what I grew up doing: it's jumping <laughs> jumping dirt bikes. Yeah, <laughs> same, same but different. Uh, but that action sports mentality is a great base for, for trad climbing for sure. Even though trad climbing is not generally that extreme. if We're talking just tracks and good stone.
0: Yeah. That's what I wanted to ask you about. So I, cause I find this all fascinating and I think it's, it's interesting as climbers, not as climbers as a culture with a lot of naivete about climbing and what it is. Climbing seems like this really extreme thrill seeking sport and, all of us who climb a lot and have taken a bunch of whippers know it's like, like compared to a s- downhill sport or speed sport like motocross or downhill mountain biking or something, it's like climbing's kind of lame. Like it's not, it's not yeah. really that risky or it's that like extreme.
2: Yeah, you know, the retirement sport. <laughs> yeah, like I was it's like about. It's closer like to golf. Definitely not as exciting as what I grew up doing, but my risk tolerance has also gone way down.
0: Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I used to, I used to mountain bike and downhill ski a lot and jump off of things. And there's so many things I did as an 18 year old that I wouldn't do now. And people think I'm like way bolder now just because they don't understand climbing. Right. But it's like, no, I was taking way more risk on my mountain bike. Um, yeah when I just didn't know any better and was just a stupid eighteen year old <laughs> kid but i so I want to ask you this because you and I are very different i mean i I more or less stick to very safe uh difficulty oriented climbing facets like bouldering and I do love highballing I've done some of that that's has some objective risk uh, but I don't do a ton of that I mostly sport climb the trad climbing I've done is relatively safe um but you're kind of further along the the extreme sports. Uh, spectrum of climbing you've done some hard 513 r-rated trad leads uh, you've done a bunch of rope soloing on El Cap, like speed rope solo ascents and things like that and ground up free climbing on El Cap. have you done anything in climbing that matches the thrill of those extreme sports like the unicycle <laughs> tricks and the motocross
2: not really it all yeah it's all felt like much mellower yeah i don't know that yeah. So rope selling the nose in a day was felt pretty radical, pretty out there, um, but in a much slower paced situation, uh, but a similar sense of commitment, walking up to this huge piece of stone with a backpack of rope and be like, I'm going to climb this feels so improbable uh, and just stick into the plan and charging ahead. Um, but definitely not in the sense of imminent danger. Mm. <laughs> Like in the motocross world, you get to a level where a hundred foot gap jump is just like part of the day, oh, part God. of the lap. You're even doing that like eight times a, a day um, for the races. So so in terms of energy levels and danger, I don't think, I, I think that peaked a while ago, <laughs> <laughs> but some of the trad climbing can be dangerous, but I, I'm actually pretty conservative. And some of my, I don't seek out danger for danger's sake in mm. my climbing and just do it when it presents a challenge well below my ability just mm. as a way to experience new terrain
0: how did climbing first come into the picture for
2: you yeah i gave up motocross racing in college it's just not very sustainable financially bodily or environmentally <laughs> and those all culminated to me like cold turkey quitting motocross actually sold my dirt bike to move into my van okay chapter so like <laughs> nearly overlapping um but not quite Um, did you have
0: bodily injuries or or any bad wrecks or anything
2: oh yeah you're you're kind of looking at a 50 50 percent or 50 percent chance of breaking a bone per motocross season oh god So i have yeah i have like those are terrible odds plates in my body i broke a humerus a femur both collarbones all in separate crashes but (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's the not bodily sustainable part.
0: I think sure. it's way gnarlier that you broke them all in separate cr- crashes
2: yeah, <laughs> rather than like, like a one and year. done.
0: Oh, man. so Crazy. When I
2: was old enough to realize the possibilities in the world, I also realized that I didn't want to pay for motocross racing and I didn't want to deal with getting hurt every year either. So I had a bit of a hole in, um, in my passions. I've always had I've always been a bit of an identity-based participant in these activities. So when I was a motocross racer, I was all in. And then the unicycling filled a gap for a little while. And that kind of fizzled towards the end of the college career. I was just not progressing. I was kind of flatlined and that was exciting. And my senior year in university, we, as a college, got a new rec center. And it had a pretty bougie climbing wall set up, like a Nice boulder and cave, a lead, lead area, everything like that. Um, and I dramatically proclaimed that I wanted to be a rock climber, having maybe gone to a climbing gym like once or twice in the like group activity sense previously. But I, I had seen the rec center being built and I saw the wall. I'm like, I'm going to be a rock climber. So I...
0: Who did you dramatically proclaim this to? <laughs> Just friends and family? My okay. Yeah. And...
2: Yeah. And a a friend that was kind of on the same path with me. So day one of the semester, I went in and bought a membership for the full year and and just never looked back. Hmm. And that was, yeah, that was like 2013, 2014. So here we are, what, eight, nine years later, still a rock climber.
0: Still a rock climber. That's not that long. (laughs) and That's actually a really impressive progression starting. So you must have been in your, what, early 20s? 20 years old, um,
2: something like that? I was like 19. Okay.
0: Yeah. So. And from 19 <laughs> to, to 28, racking up the resume that you already have with multiple ground up free ascents of El Cap and, you know, these, these hard, scary 513 plus trad routes that you've done. Have you climbed 514 as well?
2: I've done, you know, I've done, I think two. Okay. But almost all of my ascents are, first ascents, second ascents, Mm. or like random obscure things that don't see much love. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done a benchmark grade near my limit. So I kind of don't really know.
0: (laughs) I'm sure the ones you're doing are harder harder than many (laughs) of the other ones out there. They're
2: all very (laughs) obscure movements. Yeah. I always tend to like, uh, I'm definitely a slab climber. I think my toe creeping strength is probably my
0: Your toe crimping strength.
2: Say that in jest. Yeah. Yeah. Like my standing on small footholds and slap climbing and then some crack climbing mixed in is probably my strength. So little cottonwood was quite good for that. And the movement style is just so different from, from like a standard sport climbing area that Mm. I don't even know if the grades really translate, but. Totally. Yeah.
0: Why is that? Is that, is that because you envision like these how that plays into bigger objectives like things on El Cap or is it just for its own sake like what do you think it is that drew you to or draws you to that style of climbing above all else
2: yeah I think from the beginning I was inspired by the big wall climbing and wanted to work towards that and quickly got into multi-pitch climbing and knew that I hope to climb on El Cap things like that someday and then it's probably just a that self-fulfilling cycle. Once I started getting psyched on it, getting better, then it's kind of all I wanted to do. So occasionally do branch out, but <laughs> I I put most of my time towards terrain that's like 20 degrees overhung or less. Yeah.
0: And anything you can point to as far as your uh, relatively quick progression in in, the, in those styles? Is it just having like a really narrow focus and and spending so much time in those styles or anything else you can point to that you think helped you accomplish everything that you have in that kind of time frame?
2: Yeah, to me, it was mostly about practice climbing. I did quite a bit of gym climbing and built a a base of strength, Um, but I also just did lots and lots of mileage. It was going out to Little Cottonwood, which was also a formative playground in the style of climbing I became good at because um, it all is slabby and weird leaning flared cracks and i would just spend most days after work out there doing mileage whether on on-siting challenges working through the grades or at some point i just did a lot of rope soloing just going out and working on hard routes and new projects and things like that so i've, I've always had a mileage focused climbing life and i think for those styles specifically they're so, so skill-based you don't really need the the pure shoulder power or something like that, that the practice paid off dividends. Mm.
0: I'd be curious to ask what some of your goals are and what are things that you think you need to work on that you have neglected through that focused approach yeah. to this point. Like what are some of the things that, that are going that you need to do to unlock the next level, whatever that is, if you have goals like that.
2: Yeah, I would definitely like to do just more and more things on LCAP ground up specifically, mm. and then um, break into solid 514 track climbing. I have a handful of things in my mind that are like vertical, kind of tech tech cracks, seams. Um, but to me, I think. <laughs> Sound heinous. <laughs> I was just yeah. shaking my head. <laughs> I love that stuff. Amazing, dude. Yeah, it's, it's badass. For, for, for me, I think capitalizing on my strengths of already having pretty good finger strength, but bumping that up even further.
0: Where do you think that comes from? Because that doesn't really make sense given your upbringing and background. Is is that something that just came easy to you?
2: Yeah, I think it might have something to do with motocross because you are holding on. And the position of a motocross racing is actually the same as what would it be? It'd be a reverse bicep curl if you were to have a... Bar, I think I'm saying that correctly. Okay.
0: So like a, like a palms down
2: bicep curl. Yeah. 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 And that's like the position of just like riding a bike, but standing up and really muscling the thing around mm. is what I grew up doing in motocross racing. So I think the aptitude for grip strength was already built. And then that actually is the same muscles used for thumbs down finger crack climbing. Ah, (laughs) So I think, I think there's some translation there that once I figured out the technique, I already had a good muscle base for crack climbing and fingery climbing. And yeah, like most climbers, I probably just went down the rabbit hole of what felt good early on. Um, But that's my theory. I don't really know. I never really trained until, um, Kind of the last year, as I had more freedom, and it had always been heavily practice based. Mm. I'd go to the climbing gym, but just do like anaerobic threshold volume without that terminology in my head. But I would just do kind of pumpy, rapid fire bouldering sessions. Okay, yeah,
0: gotcha. I'm going to mix in a a question from a listener. This is from Christoph. And um, this is good timing. This ties into what you just said. But Christoph wanted to know, how do you train for hard trad climbing specifically? He had a couple of questions, but let's start with that one.
2: Yeah. For me, for trad climbing, it tends to just be boulder problems between stances, in my experience. Um, So I did a lot of gym bouldering and then a lot of practice from the, the mental side of things that I already had built up from action sports, so just full commitment. And those two mesh together. So I guess not so much training is <laughs> just lots of practice climbing, but focused on bouldering and then focused on um, my mental training and climbing tends to be on-site climbing. So I do a lot of on-site challenges saving saving routes for like a fresh day to give it hell and <laughs> get scared above gear, but practice that full commitment. Mm. Um, so so I think bouldering combined with like, on-site threshold climbing then bumps up your red point trad climbing grade quite a bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Um, I had a second question from him that I'll ask as well. I don't know. If, yeah, I'll ask it. We'll see how this goes. But I don't know how much like head pointing or red pointing that you've done, like hang-dogging and working out sequences and, and that sort of thing. But Christoph wanted to know, is there any difference... Uh, between how you prepare for difficult gear pitches, red points versus sport climbs or other modes of climbing?
2: I think it's pretty similar to, to sport climbing honestly, is if it's at a threshold where I might have a chance of onsighting, I usually give it one good ground up attempt. But just like sport climbing, as soon as you lower down through the pitch and are touching holds, you're also looking for gear placements. So the second go, It's funny because we use second go as terminology, but that that could mean you spent an hour or two just like hanging on the rope, touching every single hold. Right. And cumulatively like reclimbing the pitch multiple times. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But if you didn't touch the ground again, it's still second go. Totally. Funny funny terminology, but that also applies to all of my trad leads. If I didn't do it first go, it's effectively a head point because I knew exactly where I was going to put each piece for the most part. Or at least, like how the sections are going to feel and what roughly the placements are.
0: Are you the type of person that always tries to finish things?
2: Yeah. Josh Wharton's interview recently of um, his comments of leaving non or failed on sites alone is a bit of a a revelation to me and something I might start doing more often. But so much of my climbing is local. um, Right. I'm always just trying to finish things off local and continue the tick list. But for traveling, I think I'm going to employ that tactic a bit more often because I do really love on-site challenges. And if you just like barely miss it, it almost doesn't feel worth the effort just to check the box if, if you're trying to build that mental fortitude.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that combination is really good. Like going into that mode when you're on a trip and you have access to more routes to try it's a great time to to really double down on on-site yeah. practice or flash flashing practice tell me more about your time in little cottonwood because i actually have a little note here that says slc that's salt lake city hyperlocal so i'd love to hear you describe what a hyperlocal is uh, but then t- tell me more about little cottonwood because when i think of salt lake city climbing i think of the bouldering in little cottonwood and i know that there's root climbing there but i just i think of the bouldering and then i think of uh, you know the route climbing. I would think of like American Fork as the go-to for for sport climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, tell me about your time in Little Cottonwood.
2: Yeah, I think I used that hyperlocal catchphrase at the end of an essay, but I was just trying to to poke fun a little bit at how our climbing is so travel-based, especially in magazines and media. It's all about who's who or who's going where and what are these like new novel features being climbed. But personally, I've always found it more fulfilling to be deeply engrossed in a local scene or local crag, know it in and out, and be adding to that story. Um, so for for my period in Salt Lake, it was five years in Salt Lake City, which aligns with my time at BD. But I was going out to Little Cottonwood and did a lot of my first or a lot of my 510, 511, 12-minus on and breaking into grades, um, red pointing as well in Little Cottonwood, almost exclusively for all my local climbing. Um, so it was an amazing place to go through, go through the grades and it's basically all trad climbing, even if it's bolted, it's just tech granite. Mm. Um, yeah, to go back a little bit, Little Cottonwood is a, a Canyon, a single Canyon full of these very slabby granite S features. And then they're cut with steep gullies, so you get some steeper climbing um, on different aspects. And then these like kind of potato chippy, scrappy slabs all over the place. Um, and there's boulders down down in the down near the creek, deep in the canyon that are world class and well known. but the demographics between the bouldering scene and the route climbing are like fully separate, funny enough. Um, so they're like, different worlds for sure yeah and the boulders are objectively better it's something to do with how they weathered but the stone is for sure way better on the boulders okay um but the routes are usually good enough maybe a little flaky but um but the route climbing had been fairly stagnant i think the the like namesake the craig famous 13b orange crush was put up in 89 and then there was nothing to match it grade wise until mason earl did Alpenbach crack in like 2014 or something like that, maybe 13 C and that hadn't been repeated. Um, So it's kind of just lost in time. And I had a ball (laughs) working through the grades and um, getting a bunch of the second ascents that just kind of had been left undone. And there was a lot of mythology behind what these routes even entailed. So lots of storyline built up in my heart of what these routes should be, how they, feel and then to break those barriers down and execute along the way was just super formative um and then it capped with a covid year of me just rope selling old projects and new lines and i think i did like four or five 13 plus versus in 2020 right before i moved (laughs) oh yeah some of them some trad routes up to like 13d and then i one, that's probably a 14A sport route. Um, Connor herson was the only one that's done a second ascent. And oh, yeah. Gave me, the, gave me the bumps, so. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, I, I like remember... I was saying, that's, that's like as firm as my grade base gets. So. Yeah, well, he know. he
0: would know. He would know. He's <laughs> done plenty of hard things and has pretty good perspective on that style in particular. So, yeah, that that's a pretty... It's a pretty solid bump. I remember him talking about that and about you in our conversation last year. That's fun.
2: Yeah, we got we got to climb a little bit. He came through, so I gave him the local tour and saw some pretty impressive on sites from him too. Yeah, it was fun out climbing. He definitely threw down some of the 13 minuses with minimal effort.
0: Mm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Just on site, no pump, just making it happen.
0: You're a perfect person to dig into the nuts and bolts of these things. And I, I wanna ask you about some of your systems. Um, you've already mentioned rope soloing a couple times. And usually, like when I think of, um, when I hear the term rope soloing, usually aid climbing comes to mind. It's It's just a form mm-hmm. of solo aid climbing and then back cleaning and then continuing up the wall without a partner. But you've done some free climbing, some rope solo free climbing. Which is just, there's there's so many words there in different orders that, you know, like if you say free soloing, if you say rope soloing, yeah. if you say free climbing, it's yeah, anyway. So describe that system and how you started doing that or why you started doing that or why you choose that. Like you did a, uh, a ground up free ascent rope solo of Father Time um, yeah. on, on Middle Cathedral in Yosemite, which is a route that's come up a number of times on the show. It's a Mikey Schaefer route, three pitches of hard you know middle 513 really tricky really technical um, yeah maybe like what is it 11 pitches total
2: no it's like 20 <clears throat> oh it's 20 oh, okay. pitches. And i think i made five. the same mistake last time when i talked yeah. talk to katie it's it's a full big wall yeah it, it's got five pitches of 512 and the the difficulty and the mental stress is almost perfectly inverse such that the 510 rock climbing is like super stressful oh 11 climbing 511 climbing is not so bad Some of the 512 climbing is pretty heads up. And then the 513 climbing is just like standard cragging. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you say so. 1,200 feet off the ground. Wow. Makes it a little more exciting. But yeah, the rope soloing ended up... um, I'm a fairly introverted person and I'm always trying to do things on my own. So the rope soloing initially began from me wanting to go project routes alone. So I would rope solo aid climb things to then be able to top rope solo behind myself just to go work pitches or replace anchors just kind of have freedom in the mountains or at least the crags more likely <laughs> to to be on my own and do my own thing and that then evolved having done a few nose in a day ascents where i was short fixing but not doing the pdl death loop situation where you just have 60p to slack that you're climbing with what is PDL uh I think it was Pakistani death loop Is oh I don't know the full origin but it's like a a joke term in Yosemite language used mm. to describe fixing your partner's line if they're jugging the pitch you fix the line but keep 60 feet or 40 feet of slack on your side as a leader and then effectively soloing off the belay until you get some pieces in and then you're extra slack in the system decreases as you get further and further up. Um, but I was not into that. Even though I have this action sports background, I just choose to take systems over risk. Mm. Um, so I had done some nose in the day since where I would do a similar thing, except I would be rope soloing off the belay with that extra slack, but have a belay device in the system so that oh. the, the fall was mitigated.
0: Okay, so you're climbing with a partner and you're short fixing, but then you are rope soloing as you continue yeah. up. Got it. Yeah, I
2: call it a rope soloing head start. So while they're jugging the pitch, instead of just sitting there, you could use a gri gree or whatever device and and be rope solo lead climbing to get a head start. Um, and this leads to my rope soloing progression because I had done Nose in a Day a few times where I would rope solo entire pitches while my partner was jugging the previous. Because I turned out to be pretty quick <laughs> with the, the system efficiency or just mental processing of what's going on. And that led to me being like, Hey, I think I could just go do the nose in a day alone. That'd be Mm. pretty cool. (laughs) Um, And I always, I always love the improbability of rock climbing, whether it's subtle moves that seem like they shouldn't work. Or like I said, walking up to El Cap with backpack full of (laughs) rope and just trying to climb to the top alone. (laughs) Those are the experiences that stick out to me. So once that, seed was planted that led to in 2018 doing a solo niad ascent um and that went really smoothly so that was just another step of rope solo and confidence
0: that's uh, and, the nose in a day for people that aren't familiar with the acronym yeah
2: yeah so you're leading repelling the pitch and then jugging back up and starting again so you get a good bit of extra mileage <laughs> from having done it with a partner <laughs> yeah 30
0: extra pitches <laughs> plus yeah. 30 repel art yeah jeez but
2: i have not actually done that much free climbing while rope swallowing, other than like 510 nose romping where you would still be grabbing a piece i would often climb the nose in a day with a dogging draw on my blade device, or my blade loop funny enough because i see french freeing as um less about pulling on gear, every move, but more about never hanging on your arms. So I would bust some moves and then I would dog in just like a sport pitch Mm. as my method of saving energy. Um, but you would often are using your hands and feet to bust significant moves while rope soloing in that short fixing sense. Um, this is like a mush of terminology, but (laughs) (laughs) that then led to what you described as um, let's see if we can even get the adjectives, right, but free <laughs> lead rope solo climbing and specifically in a red pointing sense. Um, so my aid climbing, I had always used a silent partner and that was actually partly what kept me from doing things. Um, red point free climbing with a, um, solo device. Cause I had opened one of those up being an engineer at BD and the little metal bits that spin out and jam in the seatbelt style mechanism are really small and they rely on steel to metal interface of just like a, not even a friction, but like a, I don't know, indentation sort of catch. Are you talking about a Grigri here? Uh, talking about a silent partner.
0: Oh, what, what is that?
2: That's the, the device that's used for rope soloing. That's like a, a rolling clove hitch style mechanism. Okay. Yeah. They're really popular with aid climbers because they are so smooth. Okay. Um, but I was just making a tangent into the weeds to describe that to me, having seen the mechanism from the inside, I didn't trust those to go take a bunch of free climbing wingers. Mm. So that was a limitation in my rope soloing that just this last year, I kind of overcame in combining some different methods to switch back to a grigri for rope soloing. Mm. <laughs> this is leading into the, the father time story, but, Great. um, yeah, This so, one's
0: for the super geeks, so the, the people that want to be full-time climbers and aren't pros and want to learn how to yeah. do the rental market thing. And then also, you know, once they accomplish that, they can go climb on their own a lot.
2: Yeah, deep dive all, every <laughs> step of the way. It's funny enough, I I don't even rope solo that often. Like These few stories are kind of the majority of the times I've done it, but it's okay. always just like crazy cool experience that's a big highlight
0: let's let's uh, add something in real quick I, d- I don't mean to interrupt you i'll let you continue in a second but um i think i just saw on your blog which i'll link to in the show notes for people did you do you did like a article about your setup for this correct yes okay so if people yeah, exactly. want to reference so, that they can check that out after the the conversation for a visual
2: yep totally and that's that's what i was going to describe next is the spring um I had remembered seeing over the years, different people using Grigri's for, for a setup for hard rope solo free climbing. And I just realized that the silent partner concern could be negated by using this device that we're used to for catching repeated falls because it's metal on soft connection for the breaking. Um, the rope clamp is not suspect to wear um, and it's all external to, to be inspectable. Mm -hmm. Um, so then there are risks and risks in using the Grigory for rope settling in that the beaner itself is not redundant. The silent partner has room for two carabiners, two locking carabiners to connect to your harness. Um, the gregery only has one. Um, but like I said, this would be easier to see in the blog. But long story short, using a certain style of racking the free rope on an extra gear loop of my my harness on these clove hitches that I can dump while I'm climbing. And those all hold what I'd call the cash loop. So that's effectively the brake strand of your Grigri. If you keep that light, just like when you're playing a sport pitch, if you grabbed maybe six feet away from the device, but then just held that slack in your hands, the device will feed smoothly. And that same principle applies if you're rope soloing, but you just pre-stack all the rope you need for the pitch on your harness on these clove hitches. (laughs) Okay. That allows the device to feed while you bust moves and then say every 20 feet or so you have to stop and dump a little bit of extra rope into the system on the cash loop side. So this is the free side of the blade device. Um, But that allows you to actually do some hard climbing and trust the device and have redundancy. Um, and that's how I did father time is I, yeah, I rope sold it over five days and just brought my wall kit and went up questing alone. Um, I had been on the route probably like three years before and climbed to the top, but didn't really work the crux pitches. It was just checking it out, kind of got the beat down it, honestly. Um, but yeah, the, the rope solo ascent of father time was, yeah, just me leading free climbing, and then wrapping, jugging, and hauling my kit, and just slowly progressing as I went. But each pitch, I was red point rope soloing. So <laughs> <laughs> trying to send the pitch yeah. with all the rope on my harness and creakery on my blade device, and nothing but a haul bag and a portal ledge below me and just <laughs> going for it.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. So I'll try to describe your setup back to you for people listening, and you can correct anything that I get wrong. So, for red point free climb rope soloing, you're climbing by yourself. Like at, at the start of each pitch, you build an, a multi-directional anchor, and you attach the rope to that. And then you're basically you're lead climbing, but you're belaying yourself. So you have the grigri right. attached to your belay loop. I think I saw that you like use the elastic around your neck to hold the gree up in a in a nice position. Um, and then it sounds like you are periodically girth hitching or, or or connecting the rope to pieces of gear in the crack so that you're alleviating the weight of the rope that's building up as you, as more of the pitch drops below you. Is, am I getting that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, I would stack all the rope I need for the pitch on my harness before I started the pitch. So there'd be like eight 20-foot loops hanging off a gear loop. Okay. And that's analogous to your rope bag full of slack for your belayer Uh (laughs) sitting next to you on a sport climb.
0: And are you attached, like, are you like girth hitching the rope to quick draws periodically or how are you, how are you attaching it in those 20 foot loops?
2: um, Those are just to my harness with clove hitches that allow me to, to dump the slack while I'm climbing. So while I'm free climbing those hard pitches, I can pop the clove and add more rope to the system. Okay. And then from, Say I'm halfway up the pitch. All that rope is on my free side of the harness. but then from the grigri, it goes through the gear down through the, the all the carabiners for the cams and whatnot down to be fixed to the anchor. So the anchor is the hard point. And if I were to fall, I take a standard lead fall, the grigri catches like normal and these cash loops are just hanging out on my harness. It just adds. A little bit of extra weight and extra things to get your feet tangled in but it's a method that allows you to free climb at a pretty hard grade with
0: <laughs> got it
2: with but the difference from how standard a climbing rope selling works is that you usually try to have a redundant backup but often when you're aid climbing you can just hang there and move that backup with both hands but to me like, the the leap was just thinking of how to how to, do a one-handed dump to keep the, the extra mm. rope in the system at the correct weight. Grigree doesn't lock up. But yeah, that's a super deep dive, and with no vision, it's probably nearly <laughs> impossible to comprehend.
0: No, I think I'll, I'll try again to describe it here. So if someone if someone were to see you up on the wall... Um, it would look like you were lead climbing like normal. There'd be no belayer down there. The rope would just be tied into the anchor. But all of your gear, the rope is running through all your gear as you go upward, just like normal. Um, But what you're doing is you're stashing all of the slack on your harness so that the slack isn't all hanging down and waiting so that it can feed through the grigri really easily. And then you're just quickly one-handed, undoing those clove hitches on your belay loops to release the next 20 feet of slack as you continue upwards
2: yeah totally they look Got through it. the binoculars and they'd see a bunch of rope hanging down from the person free climbing <laughs> to like multiple 20-foot loops and be like what the hell is going on but <laughs> other than that part it would look pretty normal and then oh, they wonder why the haul bag or like wonder if the person's a haul bag what's going on at the belay but <laughs> yeah that's the premise but i really like it and yeah feel like I can climb at a pretty high level and enjoy the wilderness experience of just being up there alone. Mm. I had a portal edge and was up there for like, it was like four and a half days, I think. Um, and overlapped with, I think one other party one day. So there's like many days of just hanging out alone, kind of questioning what the silly game we're playing is for red, <laughs> red pointing rock yeah. lines, but also just listening to podcasts and hanging out enjoying a little backpacking solo camping trip
0: yeah uh, that's interesting I was gonna ask that actually if you uh if you listen to anything if you listen to music or you just mentioned podcasts versus just spending time in the quiet you know w- without anything um,
2: yeah and that trip I did a lot of podcasts yeah I forget what I was listening to but funny enough part of why I was up there was from a little bit of angst for from showing up to the scene I had had all this new freedom to go climbing and had these things in my mind, but have never been one to show up and jockey for partners. Mm. And at the same time, I kind of had a a plan fizzle for, I was originally going to go up on father time with a partner and that fell through. Um, So I was kind of in a weird mental state, not necessarily in a a dangerous go for it mentality, but just in a, I want to make this happen and unsure how to, put these pieces together. So part of that was or part of the time up there alone was just extra reflection and some podcast in the humanities sector. Just like enjoying myself and thinking about this next chapter in life and then intermittent sections of going for it on on the lead. That sounds like <laughs> awesome. a weird contrast, but yeah. I, I really enjoy it. <laughs>
0: That sounds like a. I mean, that sounds like a great experience, a great mental reset. It's so rare that we're disconnected for four days from everything else.
2: Yeah, you do get LTE in Yosemite, especially on the walls. So it's kind of funny. I was able to like text and whatnot, but not not Netflixing up there. Just lots (laughs) of time laying in the portal edge, chilling.
0: Amazing. Cool. Well, uh, as I, as I said, or as we said already, I'll link to your blog post for people that, um, are into this sort of thing and want to learn all your tips and tricks and try it out. I should probably give all the, the normal disclaimers, uh, rope soloing, <laughs> climbing in general is dangerous. Be careful. Don't do anything stupid. Yeah, reviews
2: are not meant for this. Mm. It's misuse of the device, but make your own decisions. There we go.
0: <laughs> you can be my lawyer. <laughs> Um, I was also curious about a couple other aspects of your your big wall climbing and some of these accomplishments that you've done. I'd love to get your thoughts on ground up ascents. Um Yeah. Yeah. You, you seem like someone who's thought about it a lot, who has a chosen ethic and you have reasons for that chosen ethic. And I would just be curious to hear how you think about that.
2: Yeah, totally. I tend to, yeah, overall, I would say that I value the experience over the, the final headline of what the ascent might be, for example. So I would, I would personally take a partner to ascent with a few asterisks as it's known in big walling. Say you, you break up a pitch into smaller pitches using stances, or you top rip one of the crux pitches because your partner led it and sent those sorts of things. To me, those are not at, a deal breaker in terms of how the experience feels and what it feels like to do this ascent, compared to um, what's glamorized these days in modern media is the supported ascent, which is logistically easier. As to have someone belaying or yeah belaying you and then jugging behind, and you as the climber are doing all the leading, but you might not be doing any of the manual labor. Mm. Um, so that's the, the overarching feeling of how I, how I see the big wall climbing. And what's been most meaningful to me and how that ends up in practice is that I have done a lot of that or I have done both of my LCAP free ascent of the free rider and golden gate ground up. And Golden Gate, at least I took a, a stance concession. Say that broke again. Up a, I took a stance concession. Oh, okay. So I, I broke up one of the crux pitches using a stance. Say there's 12 minus climbing to like a, a good rest stance and then a A distinct boulder problem. Um, Big wall free climbs are not necessarily engineered like a sport climb. It's not a distinguished starting and end point per pitch. You're just trying to cumulate free, ascend the wall. And what people before you did in terms of their pitches doesn't necessarily matter in objective sense to me. To me, it's where the blaze, um, it's where the ledges are so where the no-hand mm. stances are. Because um, often aid belays are in the middle of nowhere and make no sense. So if you're cumulatively trying to free this wall in a thought experiment sense, you're trying to mimic what a free soloist would do, where like Alex doing the free rider, if he gets to a ledge, he could chill there as long as he wants. And that's effectively right. the the definition of a belay and a rest. It's like hanging on your rope isn't negating your ascent if you could just stand there as long as you want to Wanted to, anyways. Um, so, <laughs> more deep in the weeds conversation. No, I, I here, like
0: but. this. So, I want to. I want to pause for a second and kind of zoom into yeah. this. So, you're you're saying that um, routes on El Cap that were first done as aid climbs, which all of them were, um, like free rider, or Golden Gate. They might have some stances where the aid climbers just arbitrarily decided, here's our anchor. We're going to put an anchor in here, and most people that free climb it just follow those arbitrary pitches yeah and what you're saying is you'd rather try to execute the wall from stance to stance regardless of where those stances fall in the the given pitches on the topo.
2: Yeah you said it much better than I did. That's perfect. And so that's one ethos or one part of my ethos that I like to to follow as much as possible. Do other and people do
0: I, that because that's really intuitive but I've never thought about it before.
2: The stance thing's a gray area. It's like what defines a stance? Because <laughs> <I was like, laughs> you can pull your hands off if you're in like a knee bar. So is that really like a uh, cool belay sort of rest? Um, but yeah, that's generally how I see the routes um, and break up the routes in my mind. And then an even more overarching ethos is that I, I wrote a blog po- post and called it affect minimal parties. That's how I see it. It's, and how popular these trade routes are getting, we need some sort of ethic that's similar to leave no trace as big wall free climbers. And to me, fixing ropes down the, the routes and leaving things stashed and other things that get in the way, um, you could use it as a scorecard of like how many climber hours are you interfering with?
1: <laughs> mm.
2: it, it's a little bit of a joke, but if you leave ropes down the South, Bay headwall wall for for weeks you're getting in the way of like many climbers coming through and that's like a full day of effect for each person versus if everyone's going ground up at roughly the same pace but all going in the same direction we can each have our own unique experiences up on the wall that feel wild and adventurous so that's the other element of my personal big wall climbing ethos so the the ledge to ledge as much much as possible combined with just trying to affect minimal parties. It's how I think of big wall climbing. Mm-hmm. And that le- leads me to these ground up ascents. And I hope to keep the ground up streak going as long as possible on LCAP. But it, it's very nuanced because even something like rappelling into changing corners could be two different situations, whether you have 600 feet of static line left up for the day while you're working it Versus left up for weeks while you're mm. working it. Or you could even repel pulling your ropes and repel the whole wall. And you might overlap a few parties, but only for a moment. Mm. That's not, you're not leaving a, a mystery lifeline to the summit that comes right when these people are having the experience of their lives, aid climbing the wall and um, have this like artificial way out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's how i see it and it's funny because the media for these ascents generally comes in from the top by nature to get top-down shots so you see lots of social media of people wrapping in and getting hero shots up high but almost all the ground-up ascents just go low-key unnoticed mm. because by definition they don't have people above them shooting photos for the most part um so that's what I'm preaching, if anything, is just no people are starting at the bottom with food and water and just climbing to the top. And it's not all coming in from the top. And the framework, like the f- current scorecard for big wall free climbing is how many asterisks did you take? How pure is your ascent in terms of, did you break up pitches back to the ledge to ledge idea? Or how many times did you fall? That's kind of it. But there's so much more to the experience and with how popular it's getting. To me, I think one aspect should be how many other people's ascent did you get in the way of (laughs) to like pull off your party trick ascent? Mm. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's my framework for guiding how I want to do these climbs. And if I have any perspective to share, it's to try to think of some sort of other scorecard than just purely asterisks of free climbing.
0: Yeah, I like that. That's really, that's really valuable food for thought for all of us because you're right i mean there is a certain style that's kind of in vogue and being glorified at the moment and it's not as far from a you know a adventure perspective um it's not the most adventurous real like authentic way to to climb a big wall like that so that's interesting i'm i'm curious for yourself do you have a, a, any idea of um the limitations of that strict ground up ethic like do you think you can is it possible to free climb something like dihedral wall or the Dawn wall, if one is good enough doing that versus, you know, doing that and then leaving ropes up and rehearsing pitches and things like that. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Uh, to me, it's less about being a purist as a climber in the adventure sense, and more just sharing a scarce resource. So, mm, got it. For example, doing first ascents or doing like really obscure aid walls free, like that's back to the scorecard of like how many parties did you realistically affect, and if you're Stringing up the dihedral wall, you might affect like a party or two a year versus mm, the, free, the rider. free rider wrapping in from the top. you're like maybe not hosing people, but the details matter. And if you're like blocking some of the good conditions or using up the shade hours for someone that's making it happen from the bottom or or even, like I said, like eight climbing parties that ha- all of a sudden have a a tether to the summit, that's what I'm getting at. Mm. So I definitely don't claim to be an adventure purist by any sense, but but do see it as a scarce resource that's getting crazy popular. Yeah. Like when I, when I did golden gate, we were hanging on tower to the people for like nearly a full rest day. And I think there were 10 other parties in eyesight that we could see. And they oh, were wow. all free climbing. There was no eight parties. Wow. From like, yeah, it was like magic mushroom was head climbers. El zone rider in south day it was just stacked full of free climbing parties so it's just not that rare anymore and or just we all should cooperate mm. and not get in each other's way that's my my take gotcha yeah no <laughs> that's great not not trying to be a purist by any means but yeah i did i just feel like there's an equation that's being forgotten about so that's that's what i'm trying to share
0: awesome yeah what are some of your dream routes on El Cap? What are, what are the ones that you lay in bed thinking about at night, um, big aspirations? Or it doesn't have to be El Cap, I'm just yeah. curious where you hope to go with your climbing.
2: The biggest thing on my mind is Magic Line. That's oh. something I've top roped on a little bit. And awesome. back to my, my small foothold strength. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what that route requires, combined with a, a good bit of head game. Yeah. Um, so right now that's like a, a route I'm working towards. And it's something that guides my, my climbing and training. And then otherwise just kind of working through the grades on El Cap. Um, so El Zone would probably be the next candidate. And then maybe something like Pineapple Express, the El Nino variation, and then hopefully some days. Yeah. I'm just like listing all the, <laughs> the routes on El Cap because they're all, all on my mind, but yeah. just working through them. Like I said, trying to keep it ground up, at least on the trade routes. And from there, we'll see what happens.
0: Awesome. Awesome. I have a question about shoes and what we can tie this into magic line in a second. Cause I'm curious about how just your process on that and how you're thinking about that. But I had wanted to ask you how you decide on your footwear, because I've seen you wear the classic, like, TC Pro and the Mura, which are, like, very common technical granite, you know, dime edging shoe choices. Um, but I, I watched a video of you. This is actually a video that Black Diamond put out featuring you attempting a route in the Wasatch called Ring That Bell, the 513R. And at the time, it was unrepeated. Looks heinous. <laughs> and you, uh, you decided to give it a ground-up flash attempt, which I... I'd love to get your thoughts on that and how you some of the things that you think about, some of the factors that you try to plan for, how you choose your gear rack and things like that for an R-rated route that's that difficult Mm -hmm. um, going for a flash. Um, But I'm curious, how do you decide on your shoes? Because in that video, you're wearing solutions, which kind of makes sense, but wouldn't necessarily be the most obvious choice for that style for, for technical slabby or vertical granite.
2: Yeah, I pretty much have three, maybe four go-to shoes. So the TC Pro is obviously the comfort shoe that I can, um, on these El Cappus sense, I'll literally climb a pitch near my on-site limit and then haul the bags still with my shoes on, maybe mm. unlaced a little bit, but that's just an incredible bit of performance out of a shoe that you wouldn't think would be possible. So the TC Pro just seems to be on its own for that flat foot comfort but still has some precision so that's a utility shoe um, but i don't do much of my hardest climbing in that shoe so um, on the contrast far side the solution was often a tool for the little cottonwood granite because things are so flared and all the rubber on the toe actually makes it really good for flared cracks oh um yeah so it was a kind of a smeary butt crack climbing shoe that was perfect (laughs) for the wasatch and that's exactly what ring that bell was um so i use that shoe a lot in the wasatch but not as much anymore um now that i'm in flagstaff climbing is a little different but on my i use a lot of stiff edging shoes and the mira vs the velcro version and the katana are my go-to and that's just a matter of if it's pure edging the mira Suits me really well. And I've done a lot of my hardest assistance with that shoe on granite because you can use the dime edges and a pretty stiff, fresh shoe will go, will do wonders on the smallest footholds. Mm. And the katana is very similar, except a little bit flatter if you need to smear. So on something like Magic Line, where you're doing a bunch, bunch of tech smears and then some crux, dime edge, like heinously small edges, a pair of katanas would be what I would be going for. Um, and being a, a trad climber, slab climber, the shoe itself matters a lot, but the lifespan of the shoe and timing it right really, really matters. So the Katana, you might have like five or six good sessions with that shoe on something so hard on granite. And that's why you saw Tommy on the Dawn wall with like a dozen pairs of TCs because <laughs> the precision, like if you just fall and skid down like erase or wipe your shoe down the slab Ugh. once or twice. So you can take the edge that you need.
1: <laughs> Got it. So it feels
2: a little bit silly, but I, I often walk up with a quiver of shoes, sometimes the same style and just different points of life for the shoe. Mm. And then, um, sometimes if I'm cragging, I just choose based on the categories of smearing versus edging versus jamming. And then what they're all pretty comfortable for my foot too, those, mm. those models just happen to be super comfortable. So I can use them up on the wall a few days in with swollen feet and they still feel comfortable enough.
0: <laughs> I love <laughs> then, it, man. I knew I knew you put that kind of thought into this, which is why I asked you and yeah, that's fascinating. I, I always found, um, I think I've put the most thought into footwear when I climbed at Smith Rock and was trying to do hard red points for, for myself at Smith Rock. The same exact thing. Totally, but there, what's interesting is like, for me, there always was a sweet spot with the shoes. Um, I've really loved the Katana lace. I've worn that on some of my harder things and the mirror Velcro. And then um, most recently the Otaki, I think I've done my two hardest routes at Smith and the Otaki, which I find to be really similar to those other shoes. It's just slightly more comfortable for me. But I always found that like the sweet spot at Smith at least, where you get like, you get edging, but you get kind of smudgy edges. They're almost like little micro smear edges. The shoe had to be a little bit broken in. It was like three (laughs) weeks in when it was starting to get slightly rounded, but still had all of its stiffness and could still edge. That always felt like the sweet spot for me versus a brand new shoe. Yeah, it's a bit of a
2: gamble. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I (laughs) I definitely don't use brand new shoes, but it's a bit of a gamble of Breaking in your shoe and stopping when it's the right moment, and then putting it aside for when it matters. So, fresh pair of katanas. I'll maybe do some sport climbing or do some general climbing that beats it up in all different angles to try to wear it in uniformly before going for those super tiny holds on a on a hard boulder or a hard route. That's, that's also a very different. Yeah, very different footwork technique than like climbing spearing or bouldering the slab climbing edging mm. and even on a slab whether it's like a distinct sharp edge or smear holds can make a huge difference of what type of shoe you want so <laughs> the footwork or the footwear matters it makes a big difference on how hard some of these things are
0: yeah so it sounds like you're going to go for the katana on magic
2: line yeah that's that's the one for me for sure and are you able
0: to train the footwork component of that challenge away from the route itself, um, aside from just drawing on all this experience of granite climbing and the Wasatch and little cottonwood and things that you've already done in the past? Like when you say you're training and kind of focusing on that objective right now, what do you do for the the technique and the foot crimping strength or whatever else <laughs> versus just, I imagine you must be training like, fingery layback climbing tensiony climbing things like that
2: yeah I've pretty much been doing a lot of basalt climbing here in northern arizona and flagstaff and uh, that's where i'm living now and there's a lot of bouldery not very sustained climbing but with short fingery sections of like laybacking tiny little tips cracks and standing on tiny nubbins mm. um so pretty much just Mileage practice again. I don't. I don't know if I have a training scheme for the the toe strength. It seems like a natural aptitude for whatever reason, <laughs> but probably also mileage. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from, but it's held true so far.
0: Awesome. <laughs> uh, that's great. So yeah. So why um, why Arizona? Why relocate from Salt Lake City to where you're at now? You're in Flagstaff.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I was just looking, my partner and I were looking both for a smaller community. In Salt Lake City, it was felt like we were in a bit of a cycle of just kind of the weekend warrior life. And with this new chapter of life for me, and then Tani had some other freedom contract work and other things coming into her life. We wanted a, a smaller community that still had good climbing access. And Flagstaff is a, a total backwoods of an area. It's not very crowded, but it's also not world-class by any means. It's just like lots of scattered routes some destination routes but very few crags mm. so that appealed to me in terms of having a a local playground that would take a lot of time to understand and i also knew of quite a few 13 plus like really solid tribe climbers here in flagstaff and i was pretty much doing my own thing in little cottonwood my own little niche and i saw that being mirrored here in flagstaff just from my mountain project research so i knew i had a, a crew of people to actually get out and climb and seek new obscure routes with so those are the main things that drew me here and we just wanted to change and made the jump like a lot of people through covid we moved a year ago yesterday actually so okay just came up on the anniversary nice
0: Nice. And was it easy to integrate into that crew? I mean, I imagine you must be a cherished resource in that hard, sketchy trad
2: climbing scene. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been fun and relatively easy. Yeah. We literally moved here knowing nobody. And I just had had two phone numbers of friends of friends as leads. And I kind of knew who people were just from my mountain project research, learning what this area was. when we were shopping around for different locales but yeah, that quickly, I mean, just getting out with people a few times from those first blind climbing partner dates <laughs> turned into being part of the crew. And mm-hmm. a smaller town definitely made it easier. I think it aligns well with my personality. As I was saying, the, the jockeying for partners in bigger groups is pretty difficult for me, but the small town vibe has suited me well. It's been great.
0: Does your partner climb?
2: Yeah. Yeah, she climbs. We do a lot of climbing together, get out a couple times a week. She's not into the, the sketchy trad climbing. She most certainly does not have an action sports background. <laughs> so it's a, a funny contrast, but she enjoys safe, fun in the sun climbing for sure. Oh, nice. Just getting strong and progressing just like we all are.
0: Awesome. That's great. Yeah. I'm curious, having all the free time that you do now, having created this this kind of full-time climber life for yourself, and living somewhere where you have access to great local climbing, how do you decide where to go, when to go, when to go on trips versus when to stay local and just climb at your local
2: areas? That's been really difficult lately. And I feel like we've trained ourselves the last ourselves, the last two years to not travel very much. Mm. So I'm trying to overcome that hurdle and, um, keep a time horizon of say three or four months and have, a trip a month or two trips a month booked out to look forward to, and then work backwards from that and kind of block out things for local climbing. Try to remind myself that there's no hurry to tick off everything here <laughs> that I want to do, um, save some things for the future, and then working back to week to week is I just live and, live and die by my calendar. I sit down once a week and plan out when I'm going to climb and shoot do out some text messages. Yeah, and then put it in my Google calendar. and Blindly
0: follow that. <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. I'm I, I'm curious. Um, that brings a question to mind too. So this is a little bit more digging into the interpersonal side. But you mentioned, you know, having your job at BD, having a full time job plus the real estate work that you're doing and the carpentry and the remodeling and stuff. You know, going from kind of all to nothing, like having all these different things that you're pouring energy into outside of just climbing. To now being a full time climber, more or less, what have been some of the things that have filled that gap of productivity, of fulfilling work, of feeling like you're doing something beyond just your climbing? I, I'm curious if you have felt a need for that at all, because so many people do. You know, they're. Yeah. I remember having this dream that like this is going to be my dream life, and it's as good as it gets. And then when you don't have anything to balance climbing with, it's like pretty disorienting and. Climbing gets climbing is a lot less interesting than we th- like to think it is when you don't have anything else going on in your life.
2: <laughs> it really is, and yeah. I definitely had that. The remodel project here took me through June of last year, but then the last eight months or whatever have been a bit of a bit of a trip. A lot of decompressing, um, but also feeling aimless at times in a way that I've tried to keep constructive. But I'm sure you feel it. It's like, what what do you do? for a rest day. And rest days happen one one to two, maybe three times a week. And that's a lot of time to fill without full-time employment. It's a great problem to have. Um, but I've I've tried to do some volunteering at a local makerspace. That's one thing I've filled some time in. And then...
0: What does that look um, like?
2: So that's a local... flight staff's a town of like 80,000 people. So kind of a small city of sorts. and this makerspace is a volunteer led community wood shop and metal shop creative space, and it's fairly new. And I just have been involved in the capacity of fixing old machines and doing general infrastructure improvements. Oh, that's cool. So that's a, an easy piecemeal way to use my skills and feel like I'm getting a little bit back. And I've really come to love Flagstaff. So giving back and trying to create this element of the community that I think should exist has helped. Fill in that void a little bit, um, but you know I really struggle with what to do as sedentary activities for for rest <laughs> that still feel meaningful. That's a definite struggle, and I have mm. yeah, I'm all ears if you have any anything you've learned there.
0: You should start a podcast, man. It t- it can take up yeah. a hell of a lot of your time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's sedentary computer work and logistics probably a good option there.
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of a joke, but I actually did want to ask you about your blogging. And I'm curious if you've ever thought about doing more of that. Like you have such a, um, you have, you, you definitely have your own lane. I mean, there's a few people I can think of that can share the really geeky in the weeds, technical nuance that, that you have perspective on. Um, like Blake Harrington comes to mind. He's someone who, whose blog I visit from time to time. If I want to like, make sure that my top rope soloing kit is like up to snuff, you know, I reference him. Yeah. Uh, have you ever thought about doing more of that kind of stuff? Whether that's, I don't know, more blogging that's specifically like sharing tricks or, or skills or maybe you already do, um, or branching into audio or video or anything?
2: Yeah, exactly. That's actually a the reason why I have that blog. And although some of those posts are dated back to 2018, 2017, I just started that this summer. Oh, okay. That didn't come to mind, but that's absolutely one of those elements of trying to create a holistic climbing life. It's not just about a sense, but knowing that I was a a 20-year-old guy in a cubicle, reading up every single blog I could and (laughs) know that information shaped my life drastically Mm. um, is the framework that led me then to, I guess that experience led me to see this as valuable and is exactly why I'm doing this blog rather than social media. Mm. I was in the social media cycle a couple of years ago and haven't really been on any of the social media platforms for a few years and was struggling how to share those stories and that voice of mine. Um, but agreed, this has been something I've tried to fill and is actually a, a sedentary activity that's mentally stimulating. And relatively interactive try to give back to the community. So that's one. And then also I had done a few, a few clinics, um, at the Craig and classic, that sort of thing. Um, and I think I have a pretty unique voice to speak to the early trad climbers, having designed some of this equipment and knowing all the tech specs, and then also knowing exactly how to misuse the equipment to make things happen. <laughs> so that's been another element that I'm, I've tried to to build up a bit and create more dimensions to climbing. It still feels like a worthwhile life to have a lot of things that are climbing centric, but more dimensions from from route development to writing, whether on the blog or otherwise, um, and then giving back in forms of classes and clinics. So those are various elements in the the category of sedentary mental stimulation, but... (laughs) it's a struggle. (laughs) Mm. It's been a big transition to go from the full-time work and side hustling to trying to find my way as a full-time climber. Mm.
0: Well, man, I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I know you're an introvert, Um, but I am too. People are surprised when I say that, but I I am too and never expected that I would do something like this. But you have, you're so well-spoken and you have such a unique voice and you clearly put so much thought into these perspectives and in, in ethics and these kind of thought experiments. I, I love the thought experiments of, um, the AMP, the effect minimal parties kind of philosophy <laughs> and climbing ledge to ledge and, uh, going ground up and these other things. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would listen to your podcast, I guess is what I'm getting at. If you ever decide to make one, and I'm sure if people are still listening to this at this point, they'd probably be really into it too. So if you ever get curious about that hit me up (laughs) we can talk shop
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah this has been a good tester this is the first podcast i've been on
0: awesome well this has been amazing man yeah this has been fascinating so fun to learn about your life about your time camping in your van at bd and your unicycling and (laughs) everything else is there anything else that we didn't get to that you'd love to talk about
2: i don't think so those are yeah those are a lot of the fun highlights of my life, often not climbing related, but (laughs) thanks for having me. It's fun to tell a few stories and get to meet you in person, (laughs) virtually.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. Great to have you. Really fun. Um, For people that have enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check out Brent's blog. I will link to that in the show notes. It's brentbargon.com. Am I getting that right?
2: Yeah, you nailed the pronunciation.
0: Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Uh, one of your friends called you a, a t- tough bargain. Yeah, So that's how I remember your pronunciation, your last name. The hard bargain. Was hard bargain. For-
2: there we go. Hard bargain. <laughs> yeah. was the one going hard around gone. Salt Lake. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, amazing, man. Um, what is next for you? What's in store for the rest of the day? And what's coming up for you with your climbing?
2: Today is the rest day. I'm probably going to go make another cappuccino. Nice. Do some reading. That oh, sounds yeah, great. A hobbyist barista, <laughs> one of my sedentary hobbies. Um, and then doing a little bit of rest work. And then my friend Laura and I, Laura lives in Flagstaff. We're headed up to Moab a couple days to go do some hard crack climbing. Oh, sick. Sick. Yeah.
0: I actually just read that you are you were trying uh, Mason Earls 514 up there, Stranger Than Fiction. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's where we, we're going to go work on. Sick. Laura's been climbing on it quite a bit. And I, I went the first day that either of us had been on it, almost a year ago already now. Um, but I'm excited to get back on it and check it out. That's definitely in the realm of, like I said, trying to break into the like solid five fourteen,
0: the official
2: crack crack realm,
0: bona five fourteen. Yeah. Nice.
2: That one's unrepeated, but that one's legit. It's hard. Cool.
0: <laughs> Amazing, man. Thanks so much for your time, really appreciate it. And uh, let's do this again. It'd be really fun to do a round two with you sometime.
2: Cool, yeah, thanks for chatting, Steven.
0: Hey, friends, thank you for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed that one and want to learn more about Brent, be sure to check out the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. There's a link to the show notes right there in your podcast app, regardless of where you're listening from. I linked to his blog and his article where he shares his rope solo setup, if you want to see that. And I shared a video he sent me of him doing some extreme unicycling back in 2012. And it's amazing. You've got to see it. Also, be sure to check out athletic greens. I truly am a fan of this stuff. I've been taking it every day for the past three months or so. And I love it. It's refreshing. It tastes good. It tastes way better than I imagined it would when I saw a picture of it. And it's super good for you. There's no weird ingredients or artificial flavors. It really is a whole foods based supplement. And you even have to refrigerate it after you open the bag, which I think is a really good thing. Seems legit. If you want to try it out, head over to athleticgreens.com nugget to get a free one year supply of vitamin D. Very important in the winter time, especially and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I've shared a couple of those travel packs with some friends here in Waco and so far everybody that has tried Athletic Greens loves it. So check it out. And finally, if you are loving the show, I would love it if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or a quick rating on Spotify. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already on your podcast app so you can get all the latest episodes. You can share this episode with a geeky friend of yours who you think will love it. Uh, Share your favorite episodes on Instagram. It all helps a ton to grow the podcast and to support me and my work so i can bring you the next episode thank you guys again for listening to the very end i appreciate you very much much love and we will see you next time